Hey, if you're just joining us, uh, first time, second time, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. I want, before I get into my message, I just want to say two things. First of all, if you're a guy, I would love to see you at men's retreat. Uh, it, this is the last week. Some, some wife just yepped it up, so I know he's getting signed up at, for retreat. But, um, you know, once a year we get away. It's a great place up in Big Bear. And I just I want to be able to talk to you guys. I'm speaking that may not thrill you, but I want to tell you that I'm going, I'm going to try to inspire you, but one thing I know I'll do is I'll challenge you, and men need to be challenged today. So if you're feeling like you're in a funk, you feel like you're in a rut, I want you to be there because I'm going to talk to you. So I don't mean to scare you, but um, I also have some great videos, so in case, you know, anything that works to get you there. And then I want to tell you about Trunk or Treat. You know, we don't do it just because we're like, we're in cahoots with the dentist in the valley. Uh, this, you know, we're a church for this city and, this for, and for this community. Uh, we don't want to be against the community. We don't want to just be placed here just like, you know, just we happen to be here. We are, we are here to minister to this community. And one of the things that we've learned is, you know, times have changed about trick-or-treat. And, you know, we could preach against it and tell everybody, you know, it's of the devil or whatever. I don't know what your feelings are about that. But we look at it as an opportunity to engage with families and um, to let them see that we're here and also to see that there's, there's, a, there's a group of people that, that love them. And you know, every year I meet people that came to our church from Trunk or Treat. Last year at Trunk or Treat, somebody said, wish me happy anniversary. And I said, oh, is it your anniversary? And they said, no, we've been at Sunridge one year because we came a year ago to, trick or, to Trunk or Treat. And it's, it's not about, like, we want people to come to our church, but we, we want to make an impact in this community. So whether you do it by giving candy, whether you pitch in with the games and hang out with kids and have, have a great time to see all these goofy kids having fun, or uh, you do a trunk, whatever it is, it's like, jump in. Because this, is, this isn't just a thing. This is a really important thing that we do. So that, that's my pitch. Okay. Ready for the message? All right. If you, if you were writing a book on how to enjoy life, how would you wrap it up? Because that's what we're doing today. The Apostle Paul, the letter to the Philippians, we've been looking at. This is our ninth week, and we're wrapping it up today. And this is a book all about joy. We've called it Enjoy. We've talked about this is the, the things that we're learning from Paul. is like how to enjoy life. And what's so remarkable about it is his situation. He's in prison. And... This is how the Apostle Paul would wrap up a book on how to enjoy life. The uh, joy comes from contentment. Joy comes from contentment. And I don't know about you, like Philippians has always been one of my favorite books. Anybody else? I just love it. And uh, going through it this time in a, in a different way, a different intensity, and studying it to teach, you know, like there's like great truths in there. But it's also really practical because joy is something we all want, yet seems so elusive to us. And yet, Paul unpacks these simple truths that, that are about thoughts, about how our worldview, how we perceive the world today. And then also there's like really practical things in there about choices that we make and how those contribute to our joy. And... In this last section, he's, he's talking about how important contentment is to joy. Now, that's important because for many of us, contentment is not our thing. 
our default is discontentment. Let me uh, illustrate. How, how many of us came to this valley because we were in search of the purchase of our first home? We came here because homes were less expensive here. Yeah, a lot of us came here for that reason. And yet, how long was it after you purchased that very first home that you never thought you'd own when you lived in Orange County or down in San Diego or in L.A.? You came out here to go through the eternal summer because you could have a house, right? <laughs> how long were you in that house before? Like, you weren't happy with that house. You were looking around. It's like, you know, I'd like to have a bigger house. They got, I like my kitchen to look like this. It's like, we do that, right? Maybe it's just me. How, how many of us, uh, you know, had like your, you know, like your everyday kind of job and it was in town and, you know, you really didn't have to commute that much and, yet, you know, like it paid the bills, but you started longing for something like a, with a little more zip to it and you thought, man, if I could get a job where I could travel and I, you know, could get out there and see the world, meet interesting people and uh, you, you, t- you made the leap and you, you took that job. And then how long were you in that job before you said, man, it sure would be nice to just have your basic job and be able to sleep in my own bed at home, you know, when you're checking into the umpteenth hotel room? How many of you were like uh, career people and you dreamed of a day that you could just stay home? You could be home with your kids, be a stay-at-home parent, and then you got to do it, and then... How long were you at home where you were starting to dream about, it sure would be nice to have a job and get out of here from like, you know, four kids under six pulling at me and your life consisted of picking up toys and making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Like none of these things are evil in and of themselves. They're all good things. Like the point I'm making is there will always be something better. And our default tends to to look at that rather than to enjoy what we have. Discontent is more the human way, but discontentment doesn't lead to joy, does it? In fact, in your notes here, discontentment leads to several things. First of all, it leads to debt. Discontentment leads to debt. You know, in the past, we've talked here about what we call the 2080 rule. We got it from Dave Ramsey in Financial Peace University. He says, you know, uh, give 10%, not, not a rule, but a goal, uh, save 10%, and then live off 80% is a general rule. But you know, most people aren't living off 80%. They're not living off 90%. not even living off 100%. They're living in debt. Most people that we meet that go through that class, they're spending more money than they make. And that comes from discontentment. You know, trying to live out the Joneses' life will cause you to miss the life God has for you. But by the way, I'll let you in on a little secret. The Joneses are in debt, too. (laughs) And, you know, I bet you most of us here can relate to that because you're either in this situation or you've been in a situation where you accumulate a lot of stuff. You know, it's like a lot of fun stuff, a lot of toys and everything. But you're finding yourself or you found yourself in a place where you didn't even have time to go have fun with the stuff that you got because you were too busy working to pay for it. And you're not enjoying that stuff. It's just stressing you out. So discontentment leads to debt. Discontentment also leads to relationship problems. Relationship problems. 
Some of us are in relationships and we're just discontent because that person or that friend or that group, they're not meeting my needs. And we, we have in our mind like this fantasy person and we're always chasing that fantasy person and we're always comparing the people in our life to the, this unreal person. And so we're constantly unhappy with the actual person or persons that we have in our lives. And um, I heard Andy Stanley once talk about relationships are like, you know, we have this box of expectations. We don't show people the box. We don't say, hey, welcome to a relationship with me. I have this box. I just want to open it up and show you all the things I'm expecting of you. We don't, we don't do that, but not explicitly, but we do it. And inside, we're always measuring the people in our life, our spouse, our friends, our small group, our church, by this box of expectations that we have for people. And it's a fantasy box. That person, that individual person, that church, that spouse, that small group, it doesn't exist. It's just fantasy. And yet we keep con comparing to them. And, you know, I know people that, like, not in a lustful way, but they just think, you know, I wish uh, my husband or I wish my wife was more like that wife or husband. Because it, if, if I had a husband or a wife like that, I'd be happy then. And people in my life, they just keep disappointing me. And so I churn through friends in constant search of this imaginary friend. And we don't throw it in each other. Well, sometimes we actually throw it in people's faces, these expectations. But, but what's more insipid than that is that we internalize it. We may not talk about it, but internally we're just discontent with the people in our lives. And so when we get to that point, like in a marriage, then we just start telling ourselves, well, they're not fulfilling my expectations, so I have a right to do these things. It's just... It's, you know, it's, it's only fair that I would have these things in my life out of this person that I'm married to. And since they don't, then it's fair game for me to find it somewhere else. Discontentment leads to relationship problems. And then lastly, discontentment leads to instability because if we're constantly churning through people and situations, then we never sink roots. Um, we're, we're always looking for the next thing. The next job, the next boss, the next community, you know, so we move, we move, we move jobs, we move communities, and, you know, some people do marriage enrichment by zip code change. It's like, well, well, life will be better over there for us. And, you know, the problem with that, with your new job and your new boss, is sometimes it's time to move. I'm, that's not what I'm talking about here. Um, the problem with constantly searching for that next new thing is there's somebody that shows up every time in that new relationship, in that new job, with that new boss. It's you. That's a problem because you're just a normal person like everybody else. I had, a, I had a friend. He's not a friend anymore because I talked to him about this. And uh, years ago... Uh, person was successful, smart, great sales person, and um, they got it in their head. They were going to write a book about being, you know, like business leadership and, and be on the speaking tour like a John Maxwell. And, um, you know, it's, the problem was nobody else thought that he had that potential. 
And, but he had this dream, and he kept chasing it. And um, so eventually he thought that, well, the problem, the reason why nobody is engaging in my book or asking me to come speak is because I have a job. So I'm going to quit my job. And he quit his job, good job, and then, you know, uh, stayed at home and worked on his business, only it never got going. And then, and then he, obviously, when you're not working, what do you got to do? You got to spend your savings that he had saved up, and he blew through all that and eventually lost his house. And, you know, his whole life now is unstable. And he, and he, he blew up all these relationships because a couple of people said to him, you know, I should probably work. I mean, really, like, ridiculous stuff. Like, and um, his, the end of his life is just ending up so unstable. You know, if there's a secret to finding contentment, I would like to know it, wouldn't you? If, and, you know, it's probably an overused phrase, but you know the Apostle Paul uses exactly those words, the secret of contentment? And so I want to talk about that today. I don't want to be discontent. I want to find the contentment that God has for me, and I, and I, I bet you do too. And out of this last part of Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 10 through the end, he reveals the secret of contentment. So if that interests you, come back to me and uh, check this out. First of all, contentment is learned. That's a secret. Contentment is learned. Philippians 4.10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. That's the only place Paul actually uses that phrase, to rejoice greatly in the Lord, that at last you have renewed your concern for me. And if, just to back up again, you know, Paul's in prison for, for sharing the gospel. And the Philippian church has been remarkable in caring for him, sending people to him, sending uh, financial support to take care of him. He founded that church. And so that's what he's talking about. Indeed, you've been concerned, but you would had no opportunity to show it. Verse 11, I have learned to be content. I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Wouldn't you love to have that? Just that. Uh, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. In any, in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And, you know, the Apostle Paul can say that through experience. You know, when you become a Christian, there's a lot of stuff you get. You get eternal life. You get the Holy Spirit. You become, uh, not, you become a child of God. You become the, uh, Jesus called a friend of God. You get all these things. But you, you know one automatic you don't get? contentment. It's not part of the standard package. It's learned. And if something is learned, it means you have to go to school for it. You have to go to contentment school. Now, that may not be good news to everyone here, but it should be if you want contentment because it says that you can learn it. You know, sometimes you just think, well, some people are just better at that, like school. You, you had a course that you were good at. You know, I was great at P.E. 
why are you laughing? That's a, that's a class. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, so I know that for, for some of us, contentment's easier than others. And, and w- but when you're discontent, you think, well, that's because everything's perfect. But that's, that's not always the answer. Some people are better at it. It's, and I don't know why, but all of us can learn it because it is a learned behavior. By the way, contentment is not laissez-faire, it's not complacency, it's not ignorance, it's not head in the sand, being lazy, not having goals, being uncaring about a situation. Paul is unashamedly ambitious about the things that are important to him, but yet he's content. It's learned. The secret of contentment is learned, Paul said. And here's two things that you'll learn in contentment school. Number one... They'll teach you to start living by the 2080 rule. I've already mentioned this. Start living by the 2080 rule. And what, you know, these aren't my words. This comes from, you know, financial planners, Christian and secular. It, you have to impose generosity on yourself. And in so doing, you will starve out your discontentment. If you try to live off everything that you have, and you think that that's where I'll find contentment, you will never find it that way. All financial planners will tell you there should be like a generosity piece, there should be a plan for the future piece, and then there should be a piece that you live off of. And if it's everything or more than everything for sure, you're not going to find contentment. That's why I say live by the 20-80 rule. It's like sugar cravings. How do you get rid of sugar cravings? I have no idea. How do you get rid of kale cravings? Be in your right mind. I don't know. You know, if you cut sugar out of your system, and I know this by experience because I'm like... The fat kid comes out at 7 o'clock at night. He gets on my shoulder, and he's like, eat cookies, eat cereal, eat ice cream. And, uh, but when I cut sugar out of my life, I don't even have to go a week, and I've lost the craving. So just want to disclose that it's not out of my life right now. <laughs> I had sugar last night. I'm planning on having some sugar later, but that's a different sermon. <laughs> But I can promise you that if you cut it out of your life, if you intentionally say no to that and yes to some other things, you will lose that craving. And I think that contentment is the same way financially. Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.17. I'm going to put it on the screen. Command those that are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now notice here that Paul isn't saying that to be a good Christian you have to take a vow of poverty. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that God richly blesses certain people. You might be one of those peoples. He blesses them. And that comes from God. And those things that you have, they are there for your enjoyment. You should enjoy the heck out of God's blessings. In verse 18, though, he goes on, he says, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. 
In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life which is truly life. You want to be content and have joy? Then live your life with that perspective. There's a big difference between having things and things having you. So live by the 2080 rule. And if you say, well, Britt, you're just trying to milk money for the church, don't give it here. If you've not, well, I kind of only mean that in a little way, but um, <laughs> seriously, if, you th- if you're like, you're not a generous, you don't have a charity you support, you don't, you don't give to your church, you should give to your church. I'm not embarrassed to say that, but if you, if you don't want to start with Sunridge, Find somewhere else and start to be generous. Impose generosity on yourself. Impose saving on yourself. Live off less. And I promise you, a year from now, you're going to be much more joyful. But thank you for the amen on that, because I know that that gets a little weird sometimes. (laughs) Secondly, the second thing you'll learn in contentment school is that you should stop throwing pity parties and start throwing grateful parties. You know, I, I get it. It's like... Social media and like just everything is like you're constantly bombarded with people who are having more fun than you. They're going on more vacations, better vacations. They're driving nicer cars. They got nicer kids. They're wearing nicer clothes. And when you see all this, you start to focus on all the things you don't have that they have. And there's a, there's a chaotic logic there that you had it last week, or you're going to have it next week. But you're not in Kauai today. You're going to be there next week, but it still bugs you that today someone else is in Kauai, and you're not. Paul says in Philippians, or Colossians 3.15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Now what I want to point out here is you totally take that first part of that uh, verse 15 as a command. We should allow the peace of Christ to make the calls in our life. We should allow God's peace to, uh, to lead us, to, to form our choices for us. That's a command. It's like it's right there. Do this, church. But in the same verse, he also says, be thankful, which is also an intentional choice. Let Christ's peace rule in your hearts. Got that? Read your Bible. Pray. And be thankful. That's, you know, Paul says that often. And that's, that's really about focusing on what you have and what God has entrusted to you than focusing on what you don't have. So the next time that you, you see somebody and you're like, you feel that green monster come up and you start to feel self-pity because... They have this, you don't. They did that, you didn't. Like, just stop and start to out loud. Thank God for what is and who is in your life. God, they are in poipu surfing left-lefts today. But I am grateful for... I can't think anything that would compare to that, so... <laughs> But you get the point, right? That's what Paul did. Paul's in prison. 
yet he's grateful. Verse 14, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. This is one of the things that the believers at Philippi were so good at. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. And if you do a study of this church and that region of churches, it's, they were super generous um, to their, even in their poverty, of, of helping Paul and other churches. But yet what I want to pull out of this is you see that Paul's in prison, and yet what's, com what's coming out from, from, through his heart, through his mind, and out of his pen onto a scroll is the things that he's thankful for, and he's thankful for these people that care about him. I'm in prison. I'm chained to a Roman soldier. It's not my choice today. I'd rather be doing 10 different things. But I just want you guys to know how thankful I am that you think of me, that you support me for our relationship. Paul focused on things that he was grateful for even though he was in crisis. And you know when you do that, you heal faster, you push through the situation more quickly, and when you don't, you pretty much stay there. And if, you're, if your life is just being eaten up by self-pity, then it's much more likely that you will never move on. And the thing you're in will last much longer. Uh, Stephen Covey, in his book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he talks about um, this tension we feel we have, like the circle of concern, which is what we're always thinking about that we can't do anything with, and then the circle of influence. Those are the things that we might be concerned about what we can actually change. And he says, when we spend, what we typically do is we spend all of our energy worrying and, and being anxious over those things that we cannot change, our circle of concern. Instead of the things that we can change, our circle of influence. You do it at work, you know, like they're doing this to us, da da da, but we, and then we don't focus on the things we actually have control over. My kids are this way, I'm so concerned, their kids are great, but you're, you're missing all the opportunity that you have in front of you. And he says, when you do that, your circle of concern grows and your circle of influence shrinks. And as long as we wallow, wallow in self pity, we're pretty much guaranteeing we're going to stay in our situation. Because there's, there's always going to be somebody who has it better. There just always will be. So it's a choice to intentionally choose thankfulness and gratefulness, not a pity party. And just as a footnote here, I want to point out that how much that meant to Paul that people were there for him. And we, as the church, we should be that to one another. You think that a card or a phone call or a text or like a, a visit doesn't mean that much. It means a ton. And any of you that have been through a crisis or you've had a struggle and somebody just shows interest in it, you know how, like, like it just... It's almost euphoric. You feel so great that somebody cares. And that will help people be grateful for what they have as well. But let's be that kind of church. Be that kind of person. So contentment is learned by starving out our own self-interests and by intentionally focusing on what we're grateful for. 
so we have a few minutes. I have two other points for you. Contentment is learned. Number two, contentment can be achieved through daily reliance on God's strength. It can be achieved through daily reliance on God's strength. Because anything that I've been talking about, if it sounds difficult to you or impossible, you're in good company. The rest of us are all going, yeah, that's a big challenge to live that way. And if it was easy, Paul wouldn't have written about it, and you wouldn't be sitting here listening to a message about it, taking notes. This is, a, this is a universal challenge. And by the way, the fall of Adam and Eve began with discontentment. Think about it. They had a perfect world. They had everything that they needed. They lacked for nothing. And if there was one thing they didn't have, the neighbor had it. And they just jonesed on that the whole time. And the serpent was able to, uh, you know, increase that discontent. And they chose against God. Just all started with, you don't have enough. You're missing out. Isn't that weird? Not much changes. Paul said in verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's important because typically we rely on God's strength for these other things. You know, we, we miss... We quote that verse but misapply it. You know, it's like, I can do everything. I can win the championship. I can um, bench press 550. I can start my business. You know, and I'm not saying that these don't apply, that, that, that those things aren't encased in that. But it's not the primary focus that Paul has here. Really what he's saying is, I can live in a contented way with God's strength. And the truth is, um, even though that sounds so trite, you do need God's strength to live this way. To live in a contented way, the way God intends for it. It's like you cannot do it without God's strength because it's living counterculturally. There's nothing in this culture or in any culture past that says that you should live in this way. You, it will be difficult. It will be impossible. You'll go against the stream. You'll make choices that are enti- entirely opposite of the people around you. And you won't be able to do it unless you lean on God's strength. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I had a conversation with a few guys uh, recently, and they were talking about how in their industry or their careers, there was like, there's a career path. Like, you know, and you probably have this in whatever career you have. And it's like there's this constant pressure to move to the next thing. You know, and every organization wants their people to rise through the, through the ranks. And, you know, somebody's got to fill these holes up at the management level or whatever. And they, and, but they also recognize that in the system they are in, like, that if you said no any place, at any point along there in their career path, if you said, no, you know, I'm going to stay here, that was career death. Maybe it's the same in your industry. It's like they're saying, you did good here, you got to go to this. You got to do that. You did this, now go to that. And at a certain point, you're going like, I don't know if I want to do that next thing. I don't know if that's for me. And yet to say, yeah, I'm here, it means death to your career. And, and these guys that I was talking to in, in their own way, they made that decision. 
they had to decide that the next thing was not for me. And it, it wasn't just they're lazy, I don't want to, you know, like I don't want the next new challenge. It was like an evaluation of the cost to them, to their family, to uh, who they were. There's a lot of thought that goes into saying no as well as yes. But they, they saw that and they made that decision. And you know what? Neither one of them regrets it. It takes God's strength to, to live in this way and to choose the joy of contentment given God's resources and your priorities and your values as a Christian to say, this, this is where I'm going to go. I wonder if there aren't people here today in this audience that you'd say, you know, I have a, I have a decision, I have a circumstance, I have a challenge that like for me to be content in this or to make a decision for contentment, it's going to take God's strength. Anybody say that? That you need God's strength today? Raise your hand. If not, you know, only raise your hand if you, if you believe, if that's true. There's a lot of hands that went up. Could I pray for you right now? I know that might seem weird, and don't, don't get all excited. The message isn't over yet. <laughs> this is like a, mid, you know, like a interim prayer. But I want to pray for you guys. Let's pray. And let these words be your prayer. God, I need your strength today. I want to live with contentment about my stuff, my house, my family, my job, my college, my roommate, my car, my circumstance. Would you give me the strength to daily rely on you to live in a Christianly contented way? In Jesus' name, amen. Last point of this, um, about living a joyful life with contentment, you know, and this is kind of spins off of this last point, that contentment is found by trusting God and his way. You need his strength, but in verse 19, Paul says, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And again, this is an often quoted but misapplied verse. I think sometimes we, we read that, it's like, you know, I can make all the choices I want, I'll make them all, but then when I need help, I'll call in for air support from God, and then he'll help me. And he will meet my needs according to his glorious riches. But that's not what trusting in God's riches means. Yes, there's reliance upon him, but the reliance is in his way. God isn't short on riches and resources to make up the difference in your life and to, and to, to lead you. But you can't, like, break commandments toward a path of God's blessing. Does that make sense? It's like when we, to rely on God and his strength and his riches means I'm trusting in his way my understanding of his way. See, Paul said that God will meet all your needs, not that he will meet all your greeds. And that's really hard when it looks like everybody else that's choosing in a different way is getting ahead and you're not. It's like when you play a game with your kids or your grandkids, now for me, and um, some cheating is going on. 
And cheating breeds cheating, I found. And so when you finally call it out, it's like, hey, that's against rules. But other people were cheating. What, what do your kids say? But they're cheating. He did it. She did it. You know, they're adult versions of that. Like, so to, to trust in God and, and to choose his way is to do it God's way, even if it looks like everybody else is getting away with it. Last night, I, I got home from like a bonsai trip out to Utah with some, some guys from Sunridge and some people not from Sunridge. We went out and mountain biked in the St. George area, and we rode some trails that in, we had ridden before. It had been a long time, but so we needed some direction, and there are apps for that. And uh, one's called Mountain Bike Project. The other's called Trail Forks, and so you just kind of plug it in, and it tells you right where you are. You see the trail come up. And it tells you where to go. But, you know, the key point here is you go the way it tells you. You have a map. And you can't expect to get to your destination without following the map. Now, I shared this in first service. You know, uh, my, two of my granddaughters are in town all this week, and so they're in the Dora Explorer um, Phase and you know about the map, right? I'm the map, I'm the map, I'm the map, I'm the map. So I just wanted to put that earworm in your brain because it's in mine. It has nothing to do with the sermon. But you get it. It's like Dora follows the map to get to the tree where the bluebird belongs or whatever, you know. And you know, to find our way toward contentment, we follow God's map. We, we trust him to get us there, but like there are choices, there are intersections, and we either choose God's way or not. And every time we choose God's way, we are, we are moving more toward contentment and joy. You see, if, if I want to enjoy my life the way God intended for me to enjoy life, then I have to trust him. And trusting him means trusting his ways. And probably to do that, I'm going to have to learn some things. I'm going to have to learn contentment. And in order to do that, I'm going to need his strength every day. But when I do that, I will find enjoyment in life. It's pretty simple. I wrote a prayer for the end of this series, and so I want to read it to you in prayer together. And, you know, if this connects with you, I I would just say make these words your words, and then we're going to stand and worship together, okay? So join me in prayer. Make... Make these words yours. God, I'm living in a world, in a circle of relationships, going to a church where sometimes the people around me seem to be further ahead. They have more. 
They go on more vacations. They drive nicer cars. They wear nicer clothes. They got nicer kids. But I want to do it your way. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to gain the skills I need. I'm going to serve. I'm going to give. I'm going to save. I'm going to choose gratefulness. But it is hard. But in spite of that, I'm going to trust you and your way because I want the kind of life that you intended for me to have. I want a joyful life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.